Well, good morning. My name is Myung, one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be with you guys. So I thought that welcome by Pastor Doug was dynamite. So dynamite that I wanted to do everything he said, except reach out and touch somebody. I'm going to rephrase that. Reach out and shake somebody's hands. Okay? <laughs> We're going to be talking about the court case that Isaiah takes us through. If you just reach out and touch somebody, you might be in a court room soon. So let's reach out and shake someone's hand and meet someone. If not, go say, go say hi to Pastor Doug. I think everyone today, out of just the dynamite of a welcome he did, should go shake his hand and give him a hug or something. Thank you uh, for the band. I think that was an amazing time of worship. I'm excited. So I'm going to ask you guys a quick question. So a quick raise of hands. How many of you guys grew up be honest here, very, very honest. Um, watching, if I offend you some, fun, some I'm, I'm very sorry. How many of you guys grew up watching some trashy mid-morning television of Judge Judy or the People's Court? Yes, yes. All right, young and the old, everyone in between here. That's great, fantastic. Okay, now, second question. How many of you have been ever selected to be on jury? to do jury duty? A lot of people, almost everyone. Okay, keep those hands up. How many of you guys now have got an exemption or excuse from jury duty? Oh yeah, there it is. How many of you have been exempt more than twice? Keep your hands up. How many of you have been exempt more than five times? Oh my goodness. I mean, she does have kids, so, you know, <laughs> that's great. So I've been part of a jury. I've also been a witness. I've also been part of the gallery. I think there's a natural fascination for us as people for justice. And I think there's a reason why TV shows like Law & Order have been going on for 22 seasons. It's like this fascination for the court system and justice for some reason. But it's not fun and games if you're the one on trial. It's not fun and games if you're the one that is defending yourself for what's to come. Today's chapter is a court case that puts God's chosen people on trial. Let me set the scene for you. Some scholars see chapter one. So I know Pastor Jason kind of gave us a broad overview of Isaiah last week. Today we're going back to chapter one. So for those of you that like to do things chronologically, this is probably just, just for you right here, okay? Some scholars see chapter one as a prologue to the entire book of Isaiah. So it actually takes us through this court case where it's giving us a picture of everything that Judah has done and done wrong. And so it's, it's gonna be intense. It's gonna be a court case that helps us see people of Judah through the succession of the many kings that they've had. And so let me tell you a little bit of the context. Where is this happening? Judah in the city of Jerusalem. Cultural context. It's written to the Jewish people of the 8th century who've faced continual military um, bombardment, uh, border fighting. There's been constant um, invasions of sorts going on all around that area. Particularly in this time, it's the Assyrians who have invaded Judah and left Jerusalem bruised and tattered, but unconquered, as verses 7 8 says. So, the city that is very desolate, burned up, and it's devoured. 
But this military jockeying of sort, this border battle that's taking place, it's not something that's unusual. I think it's unusual for us, even in the Western culture, because we don't have any border wars going on. But if you live in other parts of the world, I think this type of um, jockeying for border and this territorial battle that's taking place um, between kingdoms, countries, or empires, it's constantly a theme that's uh, playing out. And so for the people of Judah and its neighboring kingdoms, this is not something that's new. So now I'm going to describe to you what's going on in the courtroom setting here, the environment in the courtroom setting, and everyone involved. It starts with the jury. The jury in verse 2, it says, Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So the jury, who's the jury? The heavens and the earth, which means everything that God has created, they are all witnesses. Anything that God has created, the stars, the heavens, the planets, they're all witnesses to what's going on. Who is the defendant? We read at the second half of verse two, the defendant is Judah, the chosen people of God. They have rebelled against God. Who is the prosecutor? The prosecutor in this courtroom is Isaiah. What's his credibility, you might say? He's the prosecutor. You must have some credibility, right? So what's his credibility? Who is Isaiah? Pastor Jason mentioned last week a little bit about maybe the connection to the royal lineage, but his family lineage, as I was doing some research, uh, son of Amos, uh, not much is said about him. Some Jewish traditions claim Amos is the brother of Amaziah, who is one of the kings of Judah, He's a husband and father, and we know Isaiah as a prophet. So you might ask a second question following that. Okay, he's not just a prosecutor bringing this case up. What is a prophet? And so a prophet's function, primary function, um, can be seen as something that pastor, one of the retired pastors that I really dearly love, Sam Storms, an author, pastor and author, he says, the primary function of a prophet is God's represent, represent, uh, representative or ambassador by communicating God's word to his people. True prophets never spoke on their own authority or shared their personal opinions, but rather deliver the message God himself gave them. So he is the prosecutor. He is acting as God's prophet. We'll also see, though, that as a prosecutor and as a prophet, later in chapter 6, Isaiah lumps himself in with the people of Judah. He's not saying, hey, I'm the prosecutor, I'm the prophet, I'm going to be removed, and somehow I am better than the people of Judah. No, he is lumping himself in with the people of Judah. So he is not any better than them. He is part of the people that are rebelling against God. And we'll see that later on in chapter six. So who is the judge? The judge is God who is referred to as the Holy One of Israel in this chapter, the Lord. He's the one that is righteous, perfectly right, perfectly just. He's without sin or blemish, the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. So everything bows down at the feet of God. I think our Western culture is pretty far removed from the honor culture that the Eastern world lives in. What I'm saying by that is that if we're familiar with 
the honor culture of the Eastern countries, you'll know that there is a lot more respect towards authorities, respect given to those that are older than you. And we kind of miss out on that. And so in the Western culture, there's a few places where you can see that type of respect and authority um, given to authority. And one of those places is the court system. For example, to taking a step back from my own self, in the Korean culture, there's a specific honor and respect shown to older generations or someone in authority. There, so for example, if I was to speak to someone that was older than me, I would not refer them to by their names. I would call them something specific, a title that I would give to someone older than me. If you're a male or female, I'll call you something different. Another example, if I was to go to church, I would not look at the pastor in the eye. I would have my eyes down because it's a sign of disrespect. And so growing up in these kind of two worlds, I realized that the Western culture is very casual. We're very casual. We shake everyone's hand. We laugh with them. We joke with everyone. And so the court system really is one of these few places that we enter into. We're all like, oh man, we got to be serious here. And so this is kind of the picture of more of a, um, a serious court system that is above and beyond what the earthly court system shows. So let's see here. So let me give you a description of the, because we're so unfamiliar and so many of you have gotten exemptions to your jury duty, let me give you some of the required etiquettes for the Seattle court system compared to what I think is respect and awe and reverence due to God when we approach him. So this is the Seattle court system etiquette. Number one, turn off all electronic devices. For all of you, that's probably hard even right now. Number two, throw away your gum, food, and drink. No coffee. Number three, remove your hat. I think everyone's done that except one. Here, got your hat on. That's okay. Number four, keep feet off all furniture. I got in trouble for that growing up in my Korean church. Um, Number five, enter and leave the courtroom quietly. Number six, stand when the judge or magistrate enters or leaves the courtroom. That's one of the reasons why I asked Pastor Doug if we could stand for the reading of God's word is because this is a more sacred, a more holy. God is the one that rules all. And if we're going to stand up for a judge or a magistrate, I thought it would be fitting and honoring and respectful to stand up when we're reading the word of God. Moving on, number seven, address the judge as your honor. And number eight, Avoid rude behaviors like yelling, cursing, or interrupting. You guys can do like all the other stuff, but please just don't do the yelling, cursing, or interrupting today. (laughs) But greater than the etiquettes towards some earthly judge, greater than the etiquettes towards earthly court system, I wanted to show you guys through the scripture what a posture of people when we enter or people have been in the presence of God or his glory has been like. And it's often seen as a physical act of falling down or bowing face down. It's this immediate understanding of how holy God is. 
It's not a joke. It's more than me putting on my pants to be a big boy to come teach on Sunday. It's more than us just being quiet, sitting still. We're going to see here through God's scripture what the posture, what the etiquette looks like when you're in the presence of God. So here we go. Genesis 17, 3. Abraham fell down, face down, when God spoke. Joshua 5, 14. Joshua bowed his face down when he experienced the presence of God. Ezekiel 1.28, Ezekiel fell face down when the glory of God appeared. Daniel 8.17, Daniel fell face down when he encountered the glory of God. In Matthew 17.6, Peter, James, and John all collapsed experiencing God's glory. In Revelation 1.17, John collapsed at the feet of Jesus like a dead man. So for us to consider how much more does God deserve our reverence and awe compared to a meager earthly judge. What's the court's emotional atmosphere? So when you go into court, if you've been part of a jury or if you've been part of court, you know that there's an intensity to the court. But you don't really know why if you're a part of, part of um, the gallery because you're just kind of coming in not knowing. But everyone involved here knows why. So what's the court's emotional atmosphere? Throughout chapter one, we see the various emotions of grieving, sadness, and anger appear, specifically from God the judge. Now imagine you are the judge. Imagine you're the judge going to court, presenting a case, and this devastating case being presented is against your own children. That's what's taking place. This case against God's people is against his children. So that's the courtroom setting. So we're going to move on. I set the environment for you. I set the, the everyone involved in the courtroom case. So now we're going to move on, which is to the reading of the indictments. Here the indictments are listed out from verses 2 through 29. I'm going to read for you. The first indictment, verse 2, it's, it's the rebellion against God as his children. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Number two, wild animal-like behavior who can't understand where their provisions come from. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Indictment number three, sinful depravity, verse four. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Indictment number four, stubborn persistence to continue rebelling. Verse five, why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. I'm going to reference Proverbs 26.11 here because it, I think it rightly fits Proverbs 26.11 where it reads, as a dog returns to its vomit, so also a foot, a fool repeats his foolishness. And another indictment, I'm going to camp out here a little bit, but the indictment is religious hypocrisy. Verses 11 and 13 through 15. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. There's a particular emphasis in Isaiah chapter 1 with the indictments on religious hypocrisy. These religious hypocrisy is specifically aimed towards the Jewish leaders. So let me ask you a question here. Are sacrifices, offerings, incense, and prayers a good thing? Not a trick question. Are they a good thing? Yes. Are they even good things that God himself has commanded? Yes. So we're seeing here that all these good things that God has commanded and given to us were for purposes of helping them and us to see the need for God through worship and helping bring, bring to light our brokenness and sin. So instead, the Jewish people taking these good things that God has given them have made them into bad things through religious hypocrisy. The people of those times in their hypocrisy utilized worship as an act of righteous facade. When I think about righteous facade, an example that comes to mind that I think about usually around every tax season. The tax season example that I'm going to use is one of big corporations. So when you guys hear of news, right, saying such and such nonprofit receive millions of dollars through the generous donation of such and such big corporation. These awesome donations were given to us, and we could not have built this wonderful facility that we're naming after this large corporation. I see that as a righteous facade of sorts, and I'm going to title it Righteous Tax Evasion. So somehow they could make this donation to nonprofits in the name of altruism to help people. I'm not saying it's bad, but there's an underlying heart where it's being done for the margins, for the tax breaks. And so what God is saying here is that even the good things done for God and what he has commanded has become detestable and that he hates because of their heart's disposition. Jeffrey Grogan, a scholar and author, says, it's a ritual divorce from the penitence that God hates. Isaiah 29, 13 also says, it's a lip service and a heart that is far from me. Matthew 15, 8 through 9 also says, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and scribes. It's a story about Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and scribes who have questioned him, saying, hey, why doesn't your disciples wash their hands when they eat? 
And it's Jesus responding, saying that your hearts are far from me when you do these things. These traditions that you've created and the things that you are doing, you might be doing them out of a righteous facade, but your heart is far from me. Moving on, additional indictments. Verse 21, sexual sins. The faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt with her. Also, verse 21, murder. Verse 23, thievery. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow's case never come before them. So that leads us also to oppression of the weak, the fatherless and widow. In verse 29, idol worship. Verse 29 says, indeed, they will be ashamed of the scarlet sacred trees you desired and you'll be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. So when we read these indictments, it might come new to us. I think some of us, I think we should all be convicted to some degree as we fit into what they're struggling with and how they are living. But for the Jewish people specifically, hearing these indictments would have not been new. So where would they have heard this from? So back in Deuteronomy 32, during the time of Moses, at the end of his time as leader, and he was end of him, uh, nearing his life, before the people had moved into the promised land, because Moses did not make it, Moses had offered this warning, very similar indictments. And so when the Jewish people heard these indictments from Isaiah, they would have been like, oh man, deja vu. This is not new. This is not new to us. We've heard this before. Our ancestors have told us these things that we're struggling with. And so what they are hearing is not brand new, but something that they would have heard. I think that we're not so different from the Jewish people of the 8th century. I really do think that Solomon was right on when nothing is new under the sun. And I think we actually behave in a very similar way, strikingly similar. Let me give you an example. What happens to our or your little world when our politics are shaken up? Or let me give you a more concrete example. What happened in the last two presidential elections? Do you guys remember, even some of you are probably like clenching your fist, PTSD. You remember all the emotions, the turmoil, the difficulties that you might have faced with your own um, siblings or extended family members, the ugliness that came out. Let me give you a question. It's a fun one. It's like Wordle, like Pastor Doug said. Take a guess at what this quote is referring to, okay? Since 2018, sales have spiked 1,000%. Take a guess. I want you guys to just yell out some guesses. What are some guesses out there? Sales have spiked 1,000% since 2018. What was that? Gun sales. That's a good one. Bumpers? Bunkers. Oh, what else? Marijuana. 
alcohol. Man, that is so good. You know what? Acknowledging has gone up 1,000%. Hmm. Dog food? Oh, stock food. Okay. <laughs> Rations. Okay. So you were right on. I had a, didn't have any right guesses at the first service. But if you said doomsday bunkers, you were correct. This is what the CEO of Rising S Company, of course, if you can also guess, it's in Texas. Thank you, Pastor John, for Jesus and Texas and doomsday bunkers, okay? This is what he says. Sales, he says, have spiked 1,000% since that time as anxieties around pandemic, civil unrest, climate change, and war have driven more buyers to his company. 1,000% since 2018. Let me ask you another question. Shouldn't we trust in a sovereign God in the midst of political turmoil or really in any circumstance of life if God isn't really in control and he's sovereign over all things and the witnesses or the, um, the jury is the heavens and the earth, shouldn't we bow down to God and trust him in every aspect of life? Instead, I think why I say that we are strikingly similar and we act like the Jewish people is because we metaphorically, or maybe literally, I'm looking at you if you have a bunker, retreat from living out the Great Commission to our doomsday bunkers. If you have a doomsday bunker, please come talk to me. I do want to see one of those, so um, please invite me. But metaphorically or literally, I think we retreat into our doomsday bunkers. So why is that? Why does our world crash and burn when we have a powerful God who says he will take care of his children? Why would we metaphorically or literally run into our doomsday bunkers when God says he takes care of his children? It's a question to think about. But after the verdict is read, now you guys are probably all thinking, okay, I've been pulled over before. I remember when the cop knocked on my window, I rolled the window down, gave him my license and registration, he walked back, and now I'm starting to sweat. He's coming back. I see him in my rear view mirror and in the side mirrors, he is walking back. What is his decision going to be? I'm saying this is because my hope is that none of you guys have been part of a court system where a guilty verdict or a verdict had to be come down. But I think we've all been pulled over before, right? Yes? Anyone here has not been pulled over before? Oh my goodness. You guys are driving way too safe. Or you guys have a police scanner that is way too accurate. So you might be thinking, okay, we know what's going to happen. We're starting to sweat bullets here. We're awaiting the judge's decision. So you would imagine after a verdict like this is read, this case is a slam dunk, right? There's no way out of this. You're done. Slammers for you. Even for everyone that raised their hand that didn't get pulled over for speeding or whatever, slammers for all of us. There's no plea deal. There's not enough volunteer or community service hour to get your way out of this. There's no hope. 
I think if we're to be honest, if you guys love watching court shows or have watched um, court documentaries or movies, if we remove ourselves and we're just a viewer, I think we would all agree, at least I would be, that when I see someone that is defending themselves and we know that they're guilty because of a guilty verdict that is read like this, or in the indictments that are read, that are serious like this, I'm like, yeah, all right, judge, you're walking in the court. Give it to them. Give them what they deserve. Because we want to see justice handed down. But it's different when you're the one that this decision is going to come down on, right? If it's you, you're like, go easy on me, judge. Go easy on me. So what happens? Instead of God throwing down the gavel to punctuate the guilty verdict and hand down a sentencing, he offers a continuance of the case and provides directives and a promise. A continuous is a term in the court system where there's an extension to the case, where a final decision is not made. The judge says, we're going to give you an extension of sorts. So in the light of this example of the courtroom setting, what I'm going to say is that he offers us a continuance and provides directives and a promise. So here are the directives and the promise. Directive number one. Verse 16, it's a call to repentance. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil. It's a call for the Jewish people or the followers of God to repent and turn from their ways. It's a very strong call. Number two, directive. Verse 17, it's a call to do good from a righteous heart posture. Verse 17, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's from this repentant heart from verse 16 that God is now saying, live in a way that is pleasing to God, pleasing to him from a repentant heart, letting the love of God be the motivation that spurs them to seek justice, correct oppression, and care for the children and the widows. It's a heart that says, act once your heart is close to me. Once your heart is close to me, then you will act out of a heart of love and understanding for me. What is the promise? Those are the two directives. The promise that God gives is a promise of the forgiveness of sins. Verse 18 and verse 27. Verse 18 says, come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. So now if you have any um, Hobby Lobby goers, every time you see that and every little thing that they sell, you can think of this passage and how serious that passage refers to. Verse 27. Zion will be redeemed by justice. Those who repent by unrighteousness. There it is. Repenting and forgiveness. So a quick note on Zion. What is Zion? So when you ever read um, the word Zion in the Old Testament or in scripture, 
It oftentimes refers to the specific city of Jerusalem. So you could think of Zion as Jerusalem, the city, or it could also refer to as presence of God, where the presence of God dwells is also Zion. So those are the two ways you could think about it. And so an additional obvious thought comes up. Zion redeemed by justice? So you might be asking also, okay, now we're getting a little confusing. I told you that this case is a slam dunk. There is no plea deal. There's not enough community service hours you can do to get your way out of this. But justice? How can we get out by justice then? Obviously, the thought comes up because you realize a sinful people cannot be saved by their own justice. Because justice would only indict us to a very guilty verdict. So I'm going to get back to this in a little bit, but this is just one of the passages in scripture, specifically in Isaiah, that points to Jesus, whose righteousness that we obtain. But let's also take one step back. Now we know that the promises and directives are given to the Jewish people, but we also know from verse 9 that God has already shown mercy. So prior to these directives and this promise, God has already shown grace and mercy. We read that in verse 9. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. So you're thinking, okay, all right, Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we go. What is that? Sodom and Gomorrah was in the time of Abraham. Cities that were a Gentile city, so non-Jewish people, where God brought judgment to these cities for various sins, such as sexual immorality, idolatry, neglect of the poor and needy, that really culminated, culminated into a very prideful spirit. If you want to read more about it, that's in Genesis and Ezekiel. So what Isaiah is saying is that, hey, remember, God is already saying he's already saved us from becoming a city like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, can you also see the people are so wicked. Isaiah is referring to the people and referring to them as people like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like that's, that's an intense comparison. That's like us comparing ourselves to the worst people that we know is, is what Isaiah is doing. He's saying we're no different. So what's the final scene then? We move on to the final scene. In verse 18, it says, come, let's settle this, says the Lord. He says, come. That's how the final scene begins. So we continue reading of this court case unfold of a picture of God now pushing away, but he's saying, come near, let's settle this. What does this drawing near look like? I think this drawing near points heavily to Jesus because it's a drawing so close. It's a drawing close to the pointing. It's drawing close to the point of sending his own son, his only son, Jesus, to take on all our sin and shame. Jesus is the one on our behalf that takes on the entire guilty verdict and the punishment that comes for it, the punishment that we deserve 
and the guilty verdict and the punishment was to the point of his death. But the good news is that Jesus did not stay dead, but rose from the grave after three days, showing that God the Father accepted Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. And that through him, through repentance and through belief in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. It's a beautiful reminder of God's incredible love and patience. And that salvation comes as a gift through Jesus. So if you're wondering, as a believer, what does it look like? I feel far from God. Go back to remembering all the guilty verdict, all the indictments that are read against you are wiped clean because of the work of Jesus. And you can remember how near he is. And if you have questions about that, read further on scripture to see that Jesus himself drew his disciples near after he rose and said, feel my nail-pierced hands. That's how close he got to his children. That's how close he is to us. We see Paul quote Isaiah speaking about the mercy and grace of God in salvation. Romans 9.29, he says, and just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of armies had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become been made like Gomorrah. I don't know if this is amazing to you as it is amazing to me. It's a picture of God calling sinful people to himself. It's like a parent. So if you're a parent and you are really upset with your children for what they've done, and kids, it's like your parents, if you've done something really disobedient and you know it was deserving of the strictest or the harshest of disciplines. But instead of mom or dad or parents sticking our head through the door as you sent them to their room, saying, hey, these are your punishment, punishments. This is your discipline. Shut the door and walk away. That's not what God does. He tells us what we did. Gives us Jesus and draws near. That's so contrary to, I think, what our natural disposition is. It's a picture of God holding out his hand or his hands out to disobedient people. Going back to being pulled over by police, many of us, most of us have been pulled over. It's not the police just returning to your window knocking you to lower the windows again. It's not just saying for him to come to you and say, hey, I'm going to give you a warning and I'm going to let you go. It's not just that. It's more strange than that. It's like a police officer telling you to get out of the car and with a smile on, get out of your car. It's not putting you in handcuffs. It's a cop saying, I'm going to give you a warning and it gives him a hug. Gives you a hug and tells you, Get in the car and don't do that again. It's so different. It's like this mind-boggling picture that we don't understand because we don't have this understanding in our culture. We don't have an understanding of the seriousness of the court system that we usually get from maybe our other parts of life. 
Isaiah speaks of God drawing near and his extension of his hand from Isaiah 65 too. Later on, we'll also see. It says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. He spreads out his hands all day long to rebellious people. Romans 10.21 says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Church, do you feel a sense of relief and gratitude? Do you believe that your sins in the past, present, and future are dealt with at the cross? Do you believe that? This really should put a a big spring in your step as you walk out. It's like walking out these doors. Imagine you're in a courtroom setting, and it's like walking out these doors knowing that you're not guilty, you're found innocent, but beyond that, you've received the gift of a restored relationship with the judge himself. It's so amazing. What an amazing gift from God. The passage ends with yet another encouragement and a warning, though. The last two verses, 19 through 20. Let me read for us. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse, if you, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we go. One path, verse 19. The one path of receiving the gift of salvation and eating from the amazing things of God's promises through the restoration of relationship and the forgiveness of sins. And the other path, one of complete and total destruction if you continue rebelling. I think it's pretty clear that we believe in a very singular way to salvation, and that's through Jesus. There's only two paths, and I want to make that abundantly clear as we offer the the path of incredibly good news abundantly clear also. So for Christians, I think we should live out of a heart of thankfulness and draw near to God, knowing that the posture of God's hand is one of arms wide open. And for non-Christians, I would ask to please turn from the path of destruction and turn to Jesus. I would plead with you. There's only two paths, and God is waiting for you with open arms. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you are the righteous judge. Lord, I confess even I was growing up, even though I grew up in the church, I used to think this Old Testament God was a strict-like parent who just handed down discipline and punishments when we did something wrong. But Lord, you have never changed. You loved your people so much that your grace and mercy has been filled through the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. The pathway to salvation of Jesus, Lord, what a wonderful gift that you've blessed us with. I ask that, Lord, this gift of salvation through repentance and belief in Jesus, Lord, will be something that we celebrate, something that we're excited to share with others about, and something that motivates us to live for you, Lord. Lord, I repent of my own religious hypocrisy, 
there's, reveal it to us, Lord, where there's areas where we need to repent. And Lord, I ask that we would just be grateful of the work that you've done and continue to do until the end. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your gifts. And the greatest gift being Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.